0: The Metropole Hotel is located near the Bolshoi Theater in downtown Moscow. When it opened in 1901, it was a symbol of Russia's growing prosperity. After the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, it was often used by Lenin to give speeches at so-called party congresses. During World War II, the Metropole became a home and office for almost all foreign journalists allowed to work in the USSR. British journalist Alan Phillips has written a book about those days called The Red Hotel. Alan Phillips, today, if you checked into the Metropole Hotel in Moscow, you could get a room for $244 or about 190 pounds, and it looks from the website that it's pretty attractive. What am I missing?
1: Um, you are missing. Um, more than a hundred years of history um, when the hotel had been at the center of uh, Russian history in the Tsarist era uh, in the communist era uh, and afterwards Um, it's not exact it's not the most expensive hotel in Moscow but it has got more cachet for for those who uh, understand Russian history uh, for all sorts of reasons and of course and what intrigues me uh, is what was happening there during the Second World War or what the Russians like to call the Great Patriotic War uh, when it turned into a press centre for British and American journalists who Stalin didn't want there but Churchill had insisted. So he said, fine, put them up in the, uh, uh, in the metropole, um, give them all the vodka and caviar they need and the choice of young women to hire as interpreters and couriers, and uh, um, you know, keep them happy, but don't let them anywhere near the front line.
0: How many years have you personally spent in Russia?
1: Oh, quite a lot. Uh, I started in 1979 as the Reuters trainee for a year. I came back in 1985, um, but I was expelled for doing what they called activities incompatible with my status um, as part of a um, after Margaret Thatcher uh, cleared out all the Soviet spies in London of course I wasn't doing anything incompatible but uh, they needed some bodies to get rid of Uh, so I was banned from the Soviet Union for a while but when miraculously it became Russia I was allowed back and I was there in the 90s 94 to 98 um, and I've been quite regularly Well, up until the recent time quite regularly um, to do some reporting or um, uh, because uh, my wife uh, founded a charity and uh, she was attending some charity balls. Not that I like putting on a bow tie but uh, sometimes you have to.
0: When was the last time you were in Russia? Uh,
1: The last time I was in Russia was 2018.
0: The reason I ask is, and you allude to it in your book near the end, what's the comparison between Putin Russia today and Stalin Russia back there in the early 40s?
1: Well uh, in some ways um, they are unrecognizable because Russia was a poor country when Stalin was uh, was under control. It was a complete dictatorship Um Uh, when Putin took over uh, uh, with the turn of the millennium uh, he um, introduced um, he stabilized the country he stopped the oligarchs ripping everyone off stealing everything that was worth stealing and taking it abroad Um, and um, he was quite progressive uh, in in some ways Uh, and Russia had probably the biggest expansion uh, in the economy the biggest consumer consumer spending boom uh, in its history that was because the oil price was going up that's the, the beginning and end of the of the russian economy um, there was a very free media uh pretty free uh tv uh and it seemed like russia was uh, becoming more european uh things began to get a bit again began to get a bit darker um in the second decade of this century and putin clearly was looking at his uh, at his legacy what he wanted to do and what he wanted to do was to f- follow in the steps of those leaders of russia who have the name great after them that's peter the great and catherine the great they all expanded the territory of the empire peter the great towards the north uh, getting some of the shoreline of the baltic sea catherine the great getting some of the Black Sea uh, in in the south uh, so what uh, and Putin became obsessed with the idea of stopping Ukraine from drifting away and becoming what he saw as a a, a hostile forward position of, of NATO which I think is uh, ridiculous but anyway that's the way he saw it so he gradually uh, took control of all the of all of, of all the written and broadcast media, there were only one or two um, one or two outlets just for show, and um, uh, his elections became just a parade, uh, a charade, uh, and all that led to <coughs> in 2014 the taking over of Crimea, which he noticed, uh, the West accepted and swallowed and indeed business as usual continued uh, and he thought hmm I can do some more here so eventually in, uh, as we saw in, in 2020 um, he set about a, uh, a job which he thought would be very easy which was to decapitate the leadership of Ukraine and bring it back um, uh, into the Russian orbit of course he miscalculated grotesquely
0: the famine and you write about that the stalin famine back in the 19 early 1930s and and how does that how does that track on the ukraine story cuz how, how many people did stalin kill in ukraine
1: um, millions millions um, probably could be could be up, up, up to 6 million in ukraine the principle of it was that stalin had decided that he was going to take control of the countryside, the peasants had nothing to to expect from the Bolsheviks. They were a uh, a worker based party, and he decided he said decided to turn all the peasants into uh, uh, basically um, state employees. They were working for the state, and they whatever they produced had to go to the state, and he could decide what to do with it. To achieve that, he had to get rid of. Um, the people that in England we would call yeoman farmers, the successful farmers those who had um, due to their labor had acquired more land and were making a profit. Uh, he called these people kulaks which it means um, a rich peasant and uh, he deported hundreds of thousands of them from Ukraine. The situation was most acute in Ukraine because it has the best agricultural land and uh, therefore the most successful farmers, and it was a um, a grain store for the Russian Empire. Um, not so much in the Soviet Union because agriculture was just always in chaos, always on the on the point of collapse. So, um, basically, he declared war on the Soviet, on the Ukrainian countryside, on the peasants. Uh, he forced the Ukrainian Communist Party, or rather we should call it the Ukrainian section of the Soviet Communist Party to implement this, basically go into the countryside and steal whatever grain there was um, and take it away, even to take the supper cooking on the stoves in the peasant huts. Um, This has been excised, this was excised from Soviet history but of course the Ukrainians never forgot and never will forget so it is one of the drivers of Ukrainian nationalism, uh, and uh, it is felt keenly by every Ukrainian.
0: What triggered your interest in Stalin and the 1941 Metropole Hotel?
1: That is a long story. This book had a very extensive gestation. Um, I'd been to Russia as the Reuters trainee in '79, and a few years after that. Reuters sent me to be a correspondent in Tunis in North Africa not a great centre of news at the time or indeed any time but that's where I was Um, there wasn't all that much to do so I used to enjoy some lunches uh, on the seaside on the Mediterranean Sea with a woman called Tanya Matthews Um, she was Russian born she'd been Tanya Svitlova and she described to me how she'd managed to Uh, get a job in the metropole uh, interpreting for American, British and Australian journalists and in the course of that she married a British journalist um, which allowed her the the opportunity to escape Russia. She'd always wanted to escape Russia because um, she had what was known at the time as a spoilt biography that meant uh, her origins were bourgeois, she could not have any type of uh, further education she wanted to go on the stage and she wanted to go to drama school but uh, they said um, unless you were a worker or a peasant you couldn't do it so she thought well there's nothing for me here and she moved heaven and earth to get out of the country which she did so she described Mm. the strange situation in the metropole in wartime a unique situation where fraternization which was actually against the law and severely punished uh, due to uh, Stalin's paranoia. Fraternisation between Soviet citizens and, and Westerners uh, was not allowed but inside the walls of the metropole it was tolerated even encouraged uh, by the security services at the time. She was part of that so you had this little little island of, uh, of freedom just inside the walls of the metropole. Um, she uh, she married Matthews and she told me about the difficulty of 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 finding a wedding dress of buying anything actually in wartime and she managed to uh, get to leave the country with her baby even though very few people managed that um, she was a woman who it was uh, unwise to say no to anyway and I thought this is really interesting I haven't read about this and one thing led to another I went back to Russia a couple of times, and I got to know the Metropole better. But I was always looking for um, another side of the, another side of the story, um, which didn't happen until 2017, actually, when uh, someone who knew I was interested in the Metropole found a history of the hotel newly published in Russian, and I turned to the chapter about the wartime, and uh, there was names and dates and a lot of stuff which could be followed up which i started to do it which i started to do
0: describe the hotel either back then or now but just give us an idea where it is in the city what it looks like how big is it Who Um, who owned it by the way back in 1941 oh well everything everything was
1: owned by the state that wasn't the issue uh it was built in 1905 and um these days uh, it is in the best possible position for any tourist because it is in the centre of the sort of magic triangle of Russian power on one side you've got the Kremlin, on the other is the Lubyanka, the headquarters of the security police in the in communist times known as the KGB, uh, the headquarters of the security police then and indeed now and directly in front of it you have the Bolshoi Ballet which is the sort of symbol of uh, of Russian culture as the supreme example of of Russian culture and much used as a uh, as a a source of soft power uh, for Russia all over the world. So it has this wonderful position. It was built in 1905 and of course at that time Moscow wasn't the capital. Peter the Great had moved it to Petrograd, oh, I'm sorry, St Petersburg in his time on the Baltic Sea to show his, um, he wanted to be more European um, but uh, even though there was no political power in Russia it was where the rich, uh, the rich merchants, the rich businessmen, the, the sugar barons, the wheat barons um, made their money. Um, they were um, very progressive in their, in their political views produced great collections of Impressionist art which they bought all over Europe which you can see in various museums uh, in Moscow at the moment. So the Metropole um, was their, was their plaything uh, you could see uh, the wealthy people taking out ballerinas from the Bolshoi um, either in the middle of the dining room a huge, uh, a huge space um, with a, a great glass dome, um, which has survived two wars without a scratch, um, um, uh, and um, gypsy violinists—you name it—that um, uh, of course didn't last beyond the beyond the revolution. Um, yeah, after nine, after Lenin took power, he moved the capital back to Moscow, but there were no offices for the government, and there were. Nowhere for the bureaucrats and the politicians to live, so they they com- commandeered the hotel it was called the second house of Soviets and it was full of Bolsheviks Stalin lenin Trotsky all gave all gave speeches there they lived they lived on top of each other until um, accommodation could be found and pe- till people were shoved out of uh, uh, out of the apartment blocks and they could move in um. And that continued for a while until the thirties when um, situation became a bit more normal, and the hotel was used as a place to invite foreign visitors the people who Lenin called the useful idiots those who, who could be persuaded that the uh, the Soviet Union was the future of the were the future of the world and these people were many, and they wanted to be convinced because. After the Great Wall Street Crash of 1929, huge unemployment all over the West. There were uh, churchmen, politicians, uh, writers. They wanted to believe that there was an alternative, and they were they were put up in the Metropole, one of the few hotels which had ensuite bathrooms, and there was a whole um, there was a whole panoply of guides and others who were t- told exactly. What to tell them to um, so that they had a good impression of the Soviet Union. For example, George Bernard Shaw, the um, Irish writer, playwright, winner of the Nobel uh, Literature Prize, he celebrated his 70th birthday in the Metropole Hotel. Uh, he went to see a play, and at the end of it, um, the whole cast stood up on the stage and unfurled a banner in English, saying welcome to the great George, George Bernard Shaw. That kind of, that was all part of the uh, the metropole system. So when it came to wartime, um, the people who ran it uh, were used to, um,
0: should we say, manipulating visitors. That's why the press was put there. At the time that uh, you're writing about in the book, how many Australian, British, American and others, reporters were there. Probably not more than twenty-five at, at the most.
1: Um, it was the the in London, the Soviet embassy uh, was in charge of deciding who would have the right to go there, and it was up to the British government to provide them with uh, with transport. That was pretty difficult at the beginning. You could go on a ship to the Arctic and run the risk of being torpedoed and sinking to the bottom of the sea or you could go um, sort of through Africa and up th- through then up to Egypt and then Iran which was extremely extremely long um, so about about 25 um, a select few uh, and the journalists uh, fought um fought amongst themselves to have the right but it was always the Russians who chose who they wanted to come on the basis that of who would be most malleable or who was
0: inclined to believe in communism and would write the most positive things. Mm. Who were the reporters and I can remember one Parker I believe New York, Parker, T- yes. New York Times and, and other places who bought the communist or the Stalin line?
1: Um, yes, some of them some of them came um, wanting to believe that Stalin was the future of the world, and indeed, they wore blinkers. They didn't want to see. They didn't want to see anything different. Uh, others uh, were the opposite. Um, they just they saw this as a great excuse uh, to come to Moscow. Firstly, they were going to watch. They were going to report on the battles, which would decide the the, fu- the end of the war in Europe. Indeed, that was the case. Stalin had different views. They never got anywhere near the front line. They didn't interview, uh, view um, soldiers. Very rarely were they allowed to to speak to a general from time to time. Um, they were more or less corralled in the in the hotel and told to copy out uh, what was written in Pravda and his Vestia, the uh, official papers, which was propagandistic in the extreme. Um, so. Um, they were they were pretty unhappy bunnies, really. Um, uh, but uh, you mentioned Parker. Um, he came to Russia, um, having dabbled a bit in, with uh, serving for British intelligence in the Balkans, not very successfully. Anyway, he was offered by the Times, the Times of London, the job of Moscow correspondent, which of course was a, a great privilege um by the time he he arrived he was in um a, in a delicate emotional state because his wife had died in childbirth anyway so uh, he easily fell into the arms of uh, uh, of his interpreter who was called valentina scott she had actually been amer- married to an american student before hence the name scott um who was a true believer uh, in uh, in the Kremlin line, and gradually, under her influence, he became uh, the f- the most trusted propagandist for the Kremlin. And indeed, uh, he stayed in Moscow all his life um, and died there uh, in in the in the nineteen sixties.
0: When did he write for the New York Times?
1: Um, he <laughs> he wrote for the New York Times uh, from. Now, from the end of 1941, Cyrus Sulzberger had been there, uh, obviously a scion of the of the family that um, owned uh, owned the, uh, the newspaper. Um, he um, he spent a few months in Moscow, and he had he was he had a wedding, his own wedding, arranged in Beirut, and he did and he did and he left, and he appointed Parker in his stead. Uh, I would say that Parker didn't never seem to shine very much in the New York Times. Um, they they sent um, correspondence whenever whenever they could to uh, to to cover to cover it, and he was the he was the he was the standby. Um, but he did do very well with the, with the British Times, which was uh, noted for its apologias for Stalinism and for believing that um, Stalin whatever he wanted he should be given in terms of controlling half of half of Europe Uh, and he used to provide talking points for the uh, for the assistant editor Um, uh, 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 and the longer he stayed uh, the more he was caught up in the whole Kremlin uh, lie machine and when it came to the Korean War he was one of the first reporters to uh, to report the well-known Canard that the Americans were using chemical weapons, as indeed um, that's repeated to this day about the Americans in in Ukraine, isn't it? Um, he reported on the uh, the show trials in Eastern Europe that uh, some of the new satellite states put on to prove their their credentials as good Stalinists. So he really um, uh, he found himself deep in deep inside. Uh, the lie machine but somehow he was never trusted he worked for the Daily Worker after that um, the communist newspaper but they didn't think he was a real communist anyway he was um, uh, he was a contradictory personality and I think um, the spy and defector Guy Burgess the British British spy who who defected in the early 1960s Uh, he used to drink with Parker but he but um, he said, everyone knows he's an agent, but no one can say which
0: side he's on. So a contradictory character. Did any of the 25 journalists that were living in the metropole ever get an interview with Stalin? Depends what you mean by interview. Um, they claimed to have interviews.
1: Um, every week, they would post written questions in the Kremlin letterbox addressed to uh, Comrade or Marshal Stalin, as he became later, uh, with a few written questions from time to time, very rarely Stalin would um, issue some written answers. Um, these were characterized particularly in the journalist's memoirs as an interview with Stalin. but uh, Stalin never spoke directly to any to any foreign journalist. He kept himself so aloof he was a sort of godlike, godlike figure so a single word from him um, would travel around the world as a great scoop Ralph Parker of course um, was, was given uh, had some of his questions answered um, and one of them was um, when it became clear that Stalin had very different ideas on the future of Poland from Churchill of course Churchill had gone to war to defend the independence of Poland um, Um, uh, uh, Ralph Parker popped popped some questions in and said saying do you believe in a strong and independent Poland question mark answer indubitably next question now what did that mean (laughs) a single question but the fact that he'd said that uh, had a huge effect Um, those people in, in London Who were anxious who who suspected that uh, basically Stalin was going to roll over the British didn't give a damn what uh, what Churchill thought which was going to take over Poland the fact that he had said indubitably he was in favour of a strong and independent um, Poland without any details or any context at all that sort of um, gave them something to gave them a straw to uh, to hang on to really so the the Stalin interviews were very, were an example of extremely
0: successful media management. What was the great terror or great purge? When did it happen? And how much did the world know about it at the time?
1: Well, that's fascinating. I mean, there was in the early 1930s, there were the show trials when all of uh, Stalin's rivals for power or um, were Um, 1 by 1 or 2 by 2 or 10 by 10 were put on trial in open open court and the proceedings uh, covered um, quite um, lavishly in in the papers they were accused of taking part in ludicrous conspiracies with various foreigners Poles, British, you name it, uh, Japanese Uh, they all one way or another confessed to these ludicrous accusations, uh, causing people to question what on earth was going on. Um, uh, obviously, uh, some torture was involved. Long time in long time in jail. So that was the beginning. The Great Terror happened in 1937 to 1938. Stalin um, had just declared uh, a great victory uh, in his crush. Um, uh, industrialization of Russia and he stood up and said he said fellow countrymen life is getting easier, life is getting gayer, life will be more jolly and everyone thought phew after all this hard work uh, we can relax a bit. In fact the opposite happened um, uh, the, the security police which changed its name quite regularly started off as the Okpu and then became the NKVD um, arrested tens of thousands of people uh, mo- originally uh, in the in the communist party but uh, then but after that, just about anyone anyone who had a foreign name who were, seemed to be of polish origin, even school teachers in in villages who someone had denounced uh, there was an orgy orgy of blood bloodletting <laughs> where people were tens of thousands were just shot in the back of the head uh, after a, a non-existent trial um, or were sent to hard labour in the parts of the Soviet Union where no one wanted to work to the Arctic, to Central Asia to the Far East, to the gold mines there and uh, if they were lucky they survived until Stalin died if not they just died of of uh, overwork, starvation so those those were the two those were the two uh, crimes of Stalin that everyone wanted to know because uh, there had been almost very few journalists it was a journalistic desert towards the end of the 30s it was so difficult to work there that the New York Times correspondent this is the man who followed the notorious Walter Durante he was an Englishman called Eric Geddy in 19... 19 in 1941 he said as a news center Moscow has ceased to exist and every correspondent still there knows that his work is entirely valueless. Uh, With that he closed down the New York Times bureau in 1941 and uh, went to actually do some war work with the the British. Of course he didn't make any friends in the New York Times because within a year uh, Roosevelt and Stalin were allies uh, and the New York Times didn't have a bureau any longer, um, which is why Ralph Parker came into the um, came in came into the picture, because the New York Times had had a bureau there for for I think since the early twenties, which was um, um, a good which was a, a record
0: unmatched by any other Western paper. From your knowledge, how many reporters are there uh, Western reporters? In Mo- uh, Moscow or in Russia today, during this Ukraine war,
1: um, many fewer than many fewer than there were. The BBC um, has a correspondent called Steve Rosenberg, who's been there, I think, for twenty years. Um, he's a he is a fluent Russian speaker, um, uh, a a pianist of uh, concert quality, uh, can play anything. Um, and he um, watches his words very carefully Uh, he's very useful I think the Russians are happy to say that the BBC man is there Um, but uh, run one wrong word and uh, he could be out some of the newspaper special correspondents uh, may report from Latvia Lithuania other 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 parts other nearby parts um, but they have to renew their visas every th- three months every three months they have to set foot back in Moscow and go through the go through the process of re- reviewing their visas um, they think very after the arrest of Ivan of, uh, Gershkovich the Wall Street Journal correspondent on spying charges um, they are extremely cautious about going back with good reason the fear that they could either be sentenced to long periods of uh, of jail, or could just be held—and this is more likely—could just be held as as pawns to be exchanged with someone that the Russians want, uh, that the who is being held by the Americans. Um, so, some the the majority of people dip in and out, dip in and out, and uh careful where they go and what questions they ask because of course uh, the majority of people do not want to speak to them.
0: In the early 40s, 41 or so, at the Metropole, how many of the correspondents were men? How many translators were women? <laughs> um, I would say all the translators were women, the men were
1: at the front. Um, the At that time, Foreign correspondentry was overwhelmingly a, a a male profession um, among the ones I, I write about there was Charlotte Haldane who was a British communist a uh, card-carrying member of the party who persuaded the Daily Sketch newspaper that she was because of her beliefs she was best um, placed to get the uh, interview with Stalin uh, She she went out there um, there was um, Anna Louise Strong uh, an American com- communist who was there quite a lot um, though she was forced uh, even she with her loyal communist views um, was arrested at some, at some stage um, there was uh, a, unique, uh, a unique correspondent um, uh, in the form of Alice Leon Moats. She was a wealthy socialite um, uh, f- uh, from a family which was um, big donors to the to the Democratic Party, uh, quite close to to Roosevelt. And she happened to wind up in Moscow at the start of the war uh, because she knew the American ambassador, she knew everybody, and uh, she said, "Oh well, I'm going to turn myself into a reporter." She managed to uh, uh, to get a gig with with uh, uh, with Collier's magazine, uh, and um, uh, which resulted in the ambassador spending several months trying to get her to be evacuated along with what he called the embassy women, i.e., all the women at the uh, at the American embassy. She refused until eventually. Um, towards uh, 1942, Uh, she had to leave. Um, But uh, she was a rare case. So uh,
0: women reporters were infinitesimally small. As the reporters were sitting there in 1941, what was the war situation and the story behind why Germany and Russia had signed an agreement, non-aggression agreement, and then they ended up, of course, fighting each other uh, and how important was that to your story? Um, my story, the story, my
1: story begins um, uh, at the after Hitler invaded in June nineteen in June 19, in June nineteen forty one. Um, that was when um, uh, Stalin became an ally of Hitler. Uh, sorry, an ally of Churchill. Uh, a great Bolshevik basher in his youth. Uh, and, of co- and of course, and of course, Roosevelt um, uh, um, in- increasingly uh, a member of the alliance and a full member of the alliance after after Pearl Harbor. Um, well, um, in terms of reporting, there were many things you weren't weren't allowed to get to report. Many things you couldn't get past the censor, and you certainly could not get a single word about the fact that mm-hmm. at the beginning of the second world war Stalin was Hitler's non-belligerent ally providing food and, uh, and fuel for the, uh, for the invasion of France and the bombing of London uh, the reporters were only allowed to report uh, the latest news from the war um, which they got usually uh, from, from the newspapers and uh, anything beyond that was just scrubbed out with a red pencil um, or a blue pencil. Um, of course uh, if you could get um, a, a Soviet official to talk about it they would say well um, we had no choice um, but to um, uh, but uh, we had no choice Uh, at that time because we'd been let down by Britain and France of course Britain and France had allowed Hitler and indeed encouraged Hitler to take over Czechoslovakia um, much to the um, much to the despair of of the Czechs so they would say well throughout the 30s Soviet Union had proposed some sort of uh, uh, a, a European a European security arrangement which would involve um, the Russians uh, and everyone against Hitler but the French and the British turned us down they betrayed us so what could we do? Uh, we had to save ourselves um, we knew we were going to be invaded at some stage and we needed time uh, to build our armaments up to scratch that's what they'd say but you wouldn't have seen a word about that in any of the reports of the of the
0: correspondence there. So, what was the life of a correspondent like, and what was the relationship with the translator? Well, I'll quote um, Edgar Snow. He was one of the best known journalists
1: at the time. Uh, he was a man who used was used to finding his own news, not being told what to write or getting it out of newspapers. Uh, he famously. Uh, trudged uh, to the uh, in China trudged to the interior of the country and tracked down Mao Zedong who was the uh, uh, well communist guerrilla leader uh, but really an unknown figure to the Western world uh, until he interviewed him and indeed wrote a book called Red Star over China uh, which was very influential um, and indeed a bestseller so when he arrived he was he was shocked at the passivity of the journalists who seem to accept that they were billeted um, in uh, relative luxury by the standards of wartime um, and not doing particularly much. This is what um, he wrote in his diary. Many correspondents do not leave the hotel for weeks in winter but rely on secretaries and newspapers. The translators were known as secretaries. The secretary orders breakfast in the morning, arranges pillow under your head while you eat it, shops for cigarettes and vodka, translates, interprets, teaches you Russian and sometimes goes to bed with you. In exchange, the correspondent brings back titbits from the dining room, bread, cake, cheese and meat. It's a daily event to see correspondents trooping up to their rooms with a plateful of bread and cheese. This makes it sound as if the, um, the translators were greedy. Um, in fact, they took this food home to feed their families, because uh, if you weren't working um, in a in a, uh, uh, a, 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 a m- the most important sort of arms factories or doing most of war work, you were practically starving. You had 400 grams, the few slices of, of black bread, and uh, some other, um, some other tea and things from time ty- from time to time. So um, the crumbs from the journalist's table meant meant a lot. Um, uh, so that was at the beginning. So Snow was very shocked at their passivity. Um, as he began to understand the system, he realized that the only way that a journalist could find out about Russia or could even be introduced to um, to people outside the foreign ministry was through their correspondence sorry through their through their translators so they exerted huge inf- um, influence some in favor of the Kremlin and some of course uh, more interestingly and this is really the most important point of the book some were secret dissidents who, under the eyes and within the under the eyes of the security services the KGB of the time uh, whispered what was really going on in Russia what was life was really like um, uh, in wartime and what had really been happening in the great terror and uh, during the purges Uh, of course these women put themselves in huge danger uh, and after the war, um, some of them ended up in the Gulag, not surprisingly.
0: Who was Nadia?
1: Nadia. She's the heroine of the book. Um, she was um, a Jewish girl born in a shtetl, uh, a rather small one, uh, in what, mod- which is in modern-day Ukraine. Um, her grandfather was a grandfather was a rabbi, and um, she. Followed the precepts of Judaism uh, until he died, and then uh, in 1917, when the two rev- revolutions took place, the family moved to Odessa, um, much in the news these days during Putin's Putin's attack on Ukraine, um, which was uh, the most cosmopolitan place uh, in Ukraine, and I think probably the third biggest city in the in the Russian Empire. As it was so a very a vibrant place completely different from life in a muddy shtetl where not much happened at all anyway she was a precocious girl and she immediately latched on to revolutionary socialism and um, uh, she ended up uh, fighting uh, with a man who would become her husband in the civil war on the side of the Reds the Bolsheviks um, after that um, she and her husband Um, Worked for Soviet military intelligence they went to Germany and they went to Shanghai and most importantly they spent a couple of years in New York um, where their job was to steal military technological secrets the um, in the 30s the Soviet Union was spending a huge amount of money uh, buying uh, technology um uh, learning learning about uh, uh, automation uh, and industrialization, but um, Nadia's job was to uh, to get the secrets that the Americans didn't want to sell so um, with the help of members of the American Communist Party, uh, she would hang around um, uh, uh, naval naval but naval bases, um, arms factories, and uh, to uh, to get uh, plans and information from communist sympathetic workers and uh, that's what she did for two years before returning to Moscow. As a result of um, her good English and indeed her American-accented English she was an obvious choice uh, to go and work in the metropole as a translator for the English-speaking reporters. Um, which um, she had to do some sort of war work and uh, she accepted to do it. What happened to her? Um, When she came back from New York um, she'd understood that um, she'd understood that uh, the propaganda she'd heard about the starving masses in New York was very exaggerated uh, and that you could um, uh, if you worked in the Ford car plant um, you could have a reasonable life. You weren't that oppressed. Um, when she came back, she found that the uh, the Great Terror, whilst happening, uh, was in full force, and some of her friends were dragged away, uh, beaten half to death, and then and then shot. So she and her husband completely lost all faith in Stalin, but they couldn't mention it to anybody. Um, they sort of kept quiet about it. Uh, so she found herself uh in a contradictory position in the hotel she was supposed to be guiding the journalists um in the right course um uh so that only the best of the soviet union um could be would be, would be revealed um while hitler was um on the edges of the gates of moscow um she suppressed these thoughts but when it became clear that stalin was winning um she opened up and she was looking she was looking for reporters she could trust Um she was enough of a revolutionary uh, to distrust the British she saw them as snobs and she particularly distrusted British correspondents who while coming from the upper classes or the bourgeoisie pretended to be on the side of the workers she hated that um, she was reluctant to open up too much to Americans she thought they were careerist and whatever she said would end up in the pages of the New York Times one way or another, but she did trust an australian um an Australian uh, who said, um, you know we're not we're not snobs like the English. we always support the underdog anyway um uh, she translated to him for a while and basically got him to Stalingrad after the after the battle, which as an Australian he wouldn't normally have, have done so she did some good work for him and uh, they used to spend a lot of time talking uh, in her room and husband was there also because he'd been wounded and he would explain what happened in the Civil War so he wrote in a tiny little notebook a series of notebooks in in script he thought was too small for anyone to read everything that she and her husband had had told him and before he left, he said, "Nadia, there's one more thing I want." She said, "What's that?" She said, "I've never been to see how a Soviet family lives." Uh, this was completely um, uh, impossible at that time. Um, uh, you were not allowed to to go to any uh, reporters were not allowed to go to any anyone's home unless it was some film star or something like that. Um, Uh, he said I want to see how ordinary people live and Nadia said okay well and she arranged that they met outside the hotel uh, one evening in the dark and went on the metro and um, uh, after making sure they weren't followed they went up to, uh, to an apartment it wasn't an apartment it was one room where two old ladies lived and both had lost their husbands had been um, shot for their bourgeois origins. They lived on a pittance, one making hats to sell in the market, and one making buttons and dolls. Uh, so, so they basically had nothing and didn't expect anything. Um, uh, the correspondent, he was called Godfrey Blunden, uh, was very moved by this. In fact, he was almost sort of speechless when he left. And um, on the way back to the hotel in the dark, Nadia said, "You know, you can't write this. You know, you could cause a lot of trouble if you wrote this." And he said, "Don't worry, I'll put it in a novel." Well, eventually, the novel did appear. It was called "A Room on the Route," as in "route," as in road, r-o-u-t-e. A room on the route, um, because the the room that these ladies lived in uh, happened to overlook uh, the road where Stalin and his motorcade would pass regularly between the Kremlin and his and his dacha so um, it was written as a thriller but it was a sort of download from uh, from his from his notebooks Um, uh, the the room where the two ladies lived was easily identifiable uh, from the book book. Um, both ladies were arrested um, one of them was forced to uh, reveal all um, Nadia was arrested obviously she had been she was known as the translator she spent three years in pre-trial detention in the Lubyanka just up the road from the metropole and was given 15 years in the gulag and sent to Vorkuta, uh, an arctic mining settlement in, uh, in the far north uh, and various other places uh, and she was in various labor camps uh, until Stalin died. When um, the new re- the new regime uh, decided to empty the Gulag as quickly as possible of the political of the of the political detainees, um, so she survived. Uh, her daughter her daughter got 25 years, even longer. Uh, she survived too, and afterwards. Uh, Nadia settled as a as a dissident really um, she would um, she translated Arthur Koestler's Darkness at Noon um, which is a very influential book about uh, 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 about um, a, a middle-ranking communist party cadre um, which was uh, very influential and certainly when her husband read it he said ah now this has been translated into Russian. I feel our work is done. He died, but um, uh, Nadia and her daughter uh, in the 70s were allowed to emigrate to
0: Israel, um, uh, which is where she spent the rest of her life. If you were Indeed. sitting in the Metropole Hotel in 1941, how much? How, how, by that time, how many people had Stalin ordered killed? Um, if you total up the Great Terror and the, oh, the famine, the, the, the famine and the war, we must be well.
1: Uh, well, in the war, of course, um, the the executions continued, the deportations continued. Uh, uh, Stalin received so many Studebaker trucks from America that he had enough to spare to deport. Uh, the nationalities that he didn't like, like the Chechens and the Ingush, uh, from north from the North Caucasus, Kork- and um, dump them in the waste of Kazakhstan, where they either survived or not. I mean, I mean, we we could be talking we could be talking about five million uh, people people dying, and uh, and uh, hundreds of thousands um, having been having to spend
0: years in the Gulag. How? How many of those reporters were even aware of this, or, for that matter, how many? Of, <clears throat> I know you're British, but how many Americans or Brits would know how ruthless he was? Well, that's that's
1: that's, uh, that's a very good question. I think my answer is to is to go to, uh, to go uh, is to recount the press trip organized to the mass graveyard at katyn um, where thousands of Polish, where the bodies of thousands of Polish officers uh, had were buried, uh, and had been discovered by the invading Germans. Um, uh, when these bodies were were discovered, um, Goebbels, the Hitler's propaganda chief, um, made a big um, hullabaloo about it. Uh, and the Russians of course said no no it's uh, this is all wrong this is all wrong it was the Germans that killed them Um, I don't think anyone believed them and this was a very sensitive issue in wartime because obviously Churchill had gone to war for the sake of Poland uh, and Stalin looked like uh, he was keen to bolshevize Poland um, um, at the cost of um driving into exile or killing uh, the elites in the army and the professions uh, and and in business anyway um eventually the red army drove the Russian, drove the Germans away back and uh, took control of the grave site they spent about 6 months uh falsifying uh various documents found on the uh, on on the so on the dead Polish officers to indicate that they had actually been alive in 1941 when the Germans came in fact they had been killed in 1940 anyway so the journalists were taken there and uh, the Russians had set up uh, an outdoor forensic laboratory in tents and this was february it was very cold and uh, they were taken there and they could see autopsies being being conducted of these bodies which had been uh, killed three or four years before and um, one remembers very closely the, the, the chief surgeon of of the army pulling out a stinking a stinking liver and holding it up to the journalists and saying look look how fresh it is look how fresh it is must be from 1941 anyway so they were told that it was the Germans that did that, that it um they weren't sure what to believe, and when journalists are on a press trip they sort of get together and scratch their scratch their chins and their beards and think about it. And um the uh, the journalist who'd been there longest was a a, a Russia was a, a Russian born American called Alexander Vert, whose book uh Russia at War, nineteen forty one to forty five is worth reading, even though his pro Stalin um uh Bias is very clear, and he told them um and he was regarded as the expert. He told them that um the Soviet security forces never shot anyone in the back of the head. That was what the Germans did. He also said that um uh, people uh, 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 victims may have died in the camps from starvation or overwork but it was not uh, it was never they were never shot um, in cold blood which was obviously completely untrue um, and Alexander wanted to believe this I'm sure um, that uh, the whole of Poland knew exactly what the Soviet security forces did I'm sure that it was easily it was not hard to find out that um, shooting in the back of the head was indeed the way of doing it the New York Times correspondent uh, had only just arrived so he wasn't very knowledgeable so um, they sort of the journalists um, sort of followed the line given them by Alexander Wirt and just said well this is this is what we were told and any anything any lines which cast doubt on the uh, the Soviet disinformation they'd been given were excised from their reports by the censor. Um, so um, they didn't know very much. The the secrecy which had surrounded what happened in the Great Terror was enough for the for the reporters when guided by some fellow travellers not to know very much that's the shocking thing I think they should they could have known much more
0: in your research in order to be able to write this book what was the most valuable place to go or material that was available Um, the most the most most valuable was
1: discovering the recorded memoirs of Nadia she didn't write a book um, uh, I don't quite know why her her life story uh, is worth a couple of books, really. But her daughter did sit her down before she died uh, and uh, uh, record uh, what she said. Um, she has a very good memory, and uh, particularly of of people. So we got hold of the uh, uh, of the Russian text of, text of that that was a that was a brilliant source. Um, the British archives of the, of the Foreign Office of how they dealt with the dealt dealt with the journalists, um, how they how basically uh, they decided that um, it was uh, necessary for the alliance for the journalists to be allowed to be manipulated, and then they got very cold feet towards the end and realised that um, uh, that. Uh, the journalists were never going to reveal that that they'd been manipulated, and that probably any any permanent correspondent based in Moscow of a of a newspaper was going to be uh, forced to become w-
0: willingly or not a Kremlin mouthpiece. At the end of your book, you say this: <clears throat> that Stalin won the propaganda war and was able to suppress all negative coverage of the Soviet Union, in part, thanks to the complicity of the press, is not in doubt. Yes. Uh,
1: Yes, I would say that. I would add, of course, that um, uh, I don't think Roosevelt was particularly keen to see um, negative negative coverage of, of his ally Stalin. Roosevelt certainly believed that he could charm Stalin and um, and Churchill too, um, even though, of course, he had been a very effective foreign correspondent in his youth, and he always called himself an old journalist, not a former journalist, an old journalist. Um, he um, put us put aside his um, uh, uh, his his knowledge, always his, his understanding of how the trade should work uh, in the interests of. Of the alliance but I always wonder what they feared would happen did they think that Stalin would uh, stop fighting Hitler no Stalin was always going to fight Hitler because uh, he had to drive he had to drive Hitler from uh, uh, from Soviet land Um, there was a lot of not only the journalists but uh, also the politicians were tiptoeing around Stalin's sensitivities all the time and Stalin knew exactly what was going on he was happy to to uh, to uh, manipulate and to uh, expose the differences between Roosevelt uh, and Churchill for example
0: You gotta wrap it up but I need to ask you have you ever stayed in the Metropole Hotel? I have
1: stayed in the Metropole Hotel it's a, it's a fine place there's always someone playing the harp when you come down for breakfast. Um, it um, When you know the history uh, and you walk the extraordinarily wide corridors of uh, of the hotel in upper floors, you can sort of feel that um that uh, you know Stalin and Trotsky would have would have been would have been walking along, walking along there, planning how he was going well, planning how one was going to
0: overthrow the other basically. The name of the book is the Red Hotel. Our guest is Alan Phelps. And the subtitle is Moscow nineteen forty-one, the Metropole Hotel and the Untold Story of Stalin's propaganda war. Thank you, sir, very much. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to the BookNotes Plus podcast. Please rate and review BookNotes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.